Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Peter Hart and I'm with lovely Gary Bain. Hello, Gary. Hello, Pete. How are you? I'm, I'm in peak form. Peak form. Peak form. I may have peak, peaked. I may peak have peaked. Teat, they call you. Yeah, I might have peaked too early. <laughs> you may have peaked on your way here. Yeah, that's right. Now, what are we doing today, Gary? Tell me. Well, today uh, we're continuing with our story of the Battle of the Somme, and uh, today, Pete, we're going to cover the the tanks, tanky and uh, their role in the Battle of Fleurs, Corselette. Fifteenth of September, 15th of September, nineteen sixteen. So, what are the origins of it? So, because like all battles, it doesn't start on the fifteenth, does it? No, I mean the origins lay way back into the middle of August when Haig uh, sends a memo ordering Rawlinson to prepare plans for an all-out offensive with the aim of capturing the original German third line. Um, Hay considered that the second half of September 1916 would mark the decisive phase of the wearing out wary, battle wary. Uh, that the 4th and 5th armies had been waging on the Somme. Oh, sorry, yeah, that's me. Uh, uh, it's probably called the Reserve... Uh, is it still called the Reserve... When does it change from being the Reserve Army? I'm not quite sure. That's interesting, that. But, yeah, um, so they're getting all the British reserves and they're going to strike hard uh, to try and... Uh, well, the Germans, Haig thinks the Germans are tottering, doesn't he? Uh, after all the, the battering they've had. And with, of course, where else are the Germans fighting? They're not just fighting the British, are they? No. And uh, it, it, Who else he are had, they fighting? The Germans? Yeah. Oh, they were fighting just about anybody who'd have a fight, Pete. In the French, you mean? That's them, by definition. <laughs> yeah, and that's a very good point, actually. So there's um, Verdun going on, but there's also, of course, and we will come to it later, the French have a Battle of the Somme that's almost as big, if not as big. Yeah, and we've covered part of that in earlier podcasts. Yeah. But So th- there was very good reason to consider that the Germans were, as he described them, tottering. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not that uh, he was wrong, but uh, perhaps they weren't in quite the state that he thought they were. Now, in our last podcast on the Somme, we were dealing with uh, what summer madness, we called it. And this is the, uh, the piecemeal attempts to get a good start line for this offensive. Uh, um, 
what are they trying to do? They're trying to get rid of any German strong points which could enfilade uh, the, the, the approach of the British uh, in, in the big attack. Um, had they succeeded? Had they, had they got all the threatening strong points uh, or, or is there some left? No, I mean, the long drawn out struggle still left some key strong points in the German grasp, most evidently in the splintered remnants of high wood. Yeah, we talked about Delville Wood, but of course, the, we pointed out last time, there's, there's lots of fighting going on, and High Wood is a, 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 a terrible place, isn't it? Terrible. And, and also, by the time the British were ready for the next stage, the Germans had, of course, significantly strengthened their defensive positions. Ooh, the first shall be last, eh? And last shall be first. Well, that's literally true, because now, as the German third line, such as it was on the 1st of July, was now the German first line. And it was a full-scale trench system grafted out of the uh, rolling chalk downs. Was it as good as those original? Tra- and there were two more systems and lines behind it. But was, was were these new trench lines, were they as good as the original lines that the Germans, after all, had spent years preparing? Well, they didn't have the deep sunk dugouts of the original defences, but there's still a formidable obstacle to... To, to any further progress. Any hopes for that? For, I mean, that sounds grim. I mean, what, what new hope might there be? Well, there was new hope on the horizon. There was a new weapon of war, Pete. What's that? The tank. Now, that offered a slim new hope of shattering the deadlock on the song. Mm, very slim, yeah. So, well, we're not going into the history of the tank. Uh, uh, read anything by Bryn Hammond or others uh, about that. But... Uh, by 1916, it had been a prolonged gestation stretching through 15 into 16. New weapons always take a while, don't they? Uh, and there were two variants. It's a sort of lozenge shape, isn't it? Although I have to think what a lozenge is. You take it for a sore throat, Pete. All oh, right. So it's sore throat tablet, though. Mm. Um, so there's the Mark One. That's an imaginative name, Mark One tank. Uh, uh, two variants. What, what variants do you think there were? Well, there was a male variant. And there was a female variant. What's the difference? Well, the male tank is armed with two six-pounder guns with three machine guns for good measure, whilst the female tank had five machine guns. Right. Now, um, um, the... the, 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 Well, well, the the idea of the tank with the tracks is that they're they're able to go across difficult ground conditions, uh, get through barbed wire, that is absolutely crucial, whether they're intact or not, and get across trenches. That's why the tracks would would help them across that. But I think, think, and and, and I'm I'm known to be a tank uh, sceptic, you can over-exaggerate their abilities. So what problems does the Mark I uh, tank have, British tank have? Well, for one thing, they could only manage a, a speed of around about three to four miles per <laughs> hour at best. <laughs> You're a born bloody optimist, Gary. Yeah, three to four miles an hour on completely flat, I think. Yeah, or, spell, or, or spell being one give, to two, I think. Being given a push, yeah. <laughs> no, they were incredibly slow, is the yeah. point. That is a good point. Uh, uh, walking speed, you'd describe it, I, I would describe it as, and slow walking speed, more like your walking speed and Fred's walking speed than my walking speed. Yeah. Thanks, mate. Now, their armour... <laughs> oh, well, that would keep anything out, wouldn't it? Well, it was no defence against any shell fire at so, all. Right, right. Uh, small arms weapons could cause what was described as splashes of white-hot metal to bang about inside the tank to uh, quite painful effect. Yeah, that's why they developed those masks, isn't it? I think 
I think you mentioned that off tape. Sorry, we do chat to each other off tape. I never talk to you off tape if I can help it. <laughs> um, uh, would now the, the, these uh, these tracks uh, could they get across anything? No, I mean why trenches deep craters so they could only go across a certain gap of, of tra- otherwise they'd fall in yeah it, well it's not only that you know the the, the mud and tree stumps that that all tree stumps them. they yeah oh, it all I brought them that. sooner or later to a halt a tree stump would sort of yeah. it'd sort of get stuck on it yeah um oh, but were they uh, were they, uh, they they're big strong machines they wouldn't break down though would they they'd be super reliable well no they think about the time and the fact that everything was new uh, mechanically they were unreliable to an, to the extreme Pete. what was the environment like in the tank that they, they had a crew normally of about eight um what was it like for them in the tank? Well, you would describe it as a dreadful working environment. Uh, visibility. It's a, bit like, it's a bit like the Imperial War Museum. Well, a bit like here. <laughs> <laughs> visibility was extremely difficult. And that's, that, you are having a lot of trouble seeing, aren't I you? Am, you're, yes. you're actually wearing special glasses because you've just had yet another eye operation for your dodgy vision. Yeah, now visibility was extremely difficult. What do you think caused your I, poor eye? What I'm just th- going to carry on with this. What do you think your poor eyesight? Was it something you used to do in your youth? Yeah, lots of reading. Oh, yeah. Now, I'm going to finish this line if it kills me. Visibility was extremely difficult through narrow slits. Now, that made it difficult to avoid dangerous obstacles or, or so, to seek out the enemies. So you couldn't it's, see. It's both ways. You not only can't see that tree trunk or can't see the big deep trench... But you can't see what the Germans are up to. No, and, and, and you don't know, you know, where to head. Can frankly. you see your friends? You can't see anything, Pete. Right, OK. Now, although the tanks looked big... They are big. We, we've seen them. The engine filled most of the available space, and it made its presence felt in no uncertain terms, a bit like Fred. Yeah. Uh, the noise was literally deafening. And uh, were there the same sort of noxious fumes that we'd expect from Fred? Yeah, I mean, uh, it wasn't only the the, the fumes. The, the heat was enervating. Enervating? Uh, yeah, that means uh, it draining of energy, Pete. How uh, did you know that? Because I looked it up. <laughs> the heat was enervating and noxious fumes, that is like Fred, quickly poisoned the atmosphere. So how long could the crew manage? I mean, could they stay in there? I mean, what are we talking about? Just no, you're talking a few hours at most and then they're, they're literally good for nothing. Now, who was the the the? the ta- I have troubles with the tank corps. Uh, uh, it's not the tank corps, but this time it's a heavy branch motor machine gun company or something. But um, who do you, who would you imagine, in my view, is the most effective? You know me. You know what I think. Who was the most effective champion of the tank in the early days in 1916? Well, you you've said it on. Uh other occasions in the podcasts, you think that Haig was probably the most effective champion. I do. Uh, in the, Why? Why well, do I think that? He not only quickly appreciated its potential, but unlike so many of the, uh, as you described <laughs> them, vainglorious buffoons. That's more polite than I usually am. There is a thing of, of Tank Corps senior officers. They're an arrogant bunch and everybody else in the army is a moron and only they saw the potential of the tank. But that's not true, is it? Because who orders? Who has the power to do things? Who do they think it's is Haig. bloody? Haig who gets things done. Who ordered them in the first place? A certain Mr Haig. And you're going to be General Sir Douglas Haig. 
uh, general headquarters. Yeah, when I said a certain Mr. Haig, what I meant was a certain Sir Douglas Haig. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, yeah, I, th- I think Haig was the sort of chap who wouldn't mind your informality as a, as a corporal. No, he'd have loved it. Anyway, General Sir Douglas Haig... that matter, Haig. George? <laughs> I was present at a demonstration in the use of tanks. A battalion of infantry and five tanks operated together. Three lines of trenches were assaulted. The tanks crossed the several lines with the greatest ease and one entered a wood which represented a strong point and easily walked over fair-sized trees of six inches through. Altogether, the demonstration was quite encouraging, but we require to clear our ideas as to the tactical handling of these machines. And that's Haig all over. Haig is impressed, but thinking about how to use them. Uh, who's he thinking of how to use them with? Well, he's, it's, it's the infantry and the cavalry. Uh, it, uh, sorry, infantry and artillery, isn't it? it absolutely. Uh, and and he's, <laughs> he's got those three lines to overcome. You know, he's thinking about the whole picture. He's not just thinking about that front line. It's beyond that. Um, now, who's who's responsible for the planning in reality? Well, Rawlinson um, and and one of your favourites. I do quite like Mister Mister Rawlinson. What's up with you? <laughs> I do, quite. Do, you, do you mean General Sir Henry Rawlinson? I do quite like General Sir Henry Rawlinson, but on this occasion he reverted to his usual caution. Now we're never quite sure whether he's right to be cautious or not, are we? But uh, um, he, but the proposals he puts for initial proposals he puts for the fifteenth of September, they're uh, they're a carefully staged approach, aren't they? Um, um, what does he want to do? How, how does he envisage the attack? Well, it, unsurprisingly, he's minded to attack at night. Like the 14th of... of uh, well, <laughs> I wish he'd done a bit more of that in August, but yeah. never mind. Uh, that, like the 14th of August. Yeah, 14th of... August. Oh, July. July. Oh, dear, I, oh, dear. I hate to correct you, Pete. Well, I like being corrected because I'm an idiot. Uh, yes, yeah, so like on the 14th of July, he then intended to pause for a day or so move up the artillery and only then to attack again. Now, Why? Why did he think? Why? Why? Well, he, he, he rightly considered that the gap between the new first, second and third German lines was cumulatively too wide to allow his field artillery to bombard the rear lines without moving this forward. This is a question of range. We've discussed it before. The, the range of the field guns, the 18 pounders and the 4.5 inch howitzers is about six, six and a half thousand yards at most, which means you can't get too far beyond the British front line before you start there. The yeah, if you're 2,000 yards behind the line, then there's, t- yeah, then you, you've got an effective 4,000 yard range at maximum. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, so there. Now, uh, how does Haig react? Well, he's underwhelmed by the these plans. Uh, so, so, God, you be Haig again. Explain what, well, you're going to say what you think. I studied Rawlinson's proposals for the September attack and for the use of the tanks. In my opinion, he is not making enough of the situation and the deterioration of the enemy's troops. I think we should make our attack as strong and as violent as possible and go as far as possible. Mm, not not bite and hold. Um, now, um, uh, why do you think... Now, 
Rawlinson is in command of of of, uh, of his army, Fourth Army. Uh, why do you think he? Well, Haig's is superior. Haig's still holding loose over him, uh, not loose. Uh, Nerve Chappelle, where uh, he'd done something, he'd, he'd um, tried to trash a subordinate. But there's something else. Uh, why else would uh, Rawlinson be in a spot of bother with Haig? Well, any credit that he'd earned for his bold plan of the 14th of July had long since evaporated. No, so you keep remembering that date correctly. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, six weeks devoid of any significant success. So his credit had evaporated away. Any credit he'd earned, because yeah, he, he had he had stuck to his plan against Haig's opposition over the 14th of July. But since then, nothing, no success. But having said that, you know Haig's own proposals were themselves flawed. In what way would you say? Well, once again, in trying to take three lines and break through the German lines, Haig's running the risk of diluting the artillery preparation and thereby falling at the first hurdle. Yeah, and committing all his reserves in as well. Uh, this is the one thing. You, you, if you commit all your reserves in the first attack, you, you can't react to whatever happens, good or bad, I suppose. Good or bad. Uh, that, oh, dear. Um, so uh, does, what does Rawlinson do? Well, he's got little choice. He, he's got to conform to Haig's requirements. So they would attack on a wide front, with each attacking corps using all three divisions on narrow fronts to maximise the impact of the attack. So the three in line next to each other. Yeah, and the main thrust, however, would be centred on Fleur. That's the village of Fleur, right. Uh, what's at the centre of British plans? Is it the tanks? No, it's, it's, it's as usual, it is the artillery bombardment. And do you know what? Even at Cambrai, a year and a half, a year later, not a year and a half, a year and a month or so later, it's still at the centre. Uh, it is always at the centre. Um, Artillery, we've talked about this before, but let's just go through it. What, what are the debates that are going on about artillery, about how it should be used, about the best form? Because they're legion, aren't they, the debates? There's lots and lots of them. What, what sort of things are, are being questioned? Well, once again, they're, they're, they're discussing should they be long and pounding ah. or short hurricane waves of destruction? Well, hurricane waves of destruction would, would be best, but what about the barbed wire? Hmm. Mm. Which can't be dealt with in a in a, a hurricane bombardment. It, 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 uh, well, that's interesting. What else? What well, else then are... they talk about should the infantry be covered by creeping barrages of high explosive or shrapnel sh uh, well, shells? Well, that 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 that's the new British development. It, uh, the French have been working on it uh, on the internet. People have been saying they even used it in the Boer War. But it's a, mainly a French development, I think. Um, um, uh, and uh, it, the British are increasingly using it on the Somme. It's a great British weapon of war. Line of shrapnel moving forward. Um, the next one we talked about before, what about the counter-battery fire coming from the enemy? Yeah, so you have to take that... You, you've got to take that out, because if you don't, they're going to pinpoint before, you. Before. Before you go into the attack. Absolutely. So, otherwise, they open fire on your infantry yeah, and, and the, also cut you off. And infantry caught in the open, they are going to cut out any supporting reserves that are moving forward, but they're also going to identify where your guns are. Yeah. So uh, the, another thing is, uh, back to the creeping barrage, I'm sorry, I'm rambling a bit, but uh, how close should the infantry be to that barrage? What do you say about that? We, we talked about that with the Australians at Posios, uh in the last Somme episode, how close you get to the back of it. What's the disadvantage of being right up the, uh, the rear of the shell, right up close to the shell line as it moves forward? Well, there comes a point where the casualties from the friendly fire... As oh, you mean would, shells dropping short? Yeah, as it would now be described, that outweighs any advantages that you have. But gunners say their shells never drop short. Well, they don't. 
I do. <laughs> Warm barrels, bad gunnery, all sorts of reasons, isn't it? Now, the other things, uh, what about uh, one thing that's being discussed increasingly is how many guns do you have ready to go forward uh, as soon as possible? behind the infantry to extend that this business of to get at the second and third lines all of these they're all there's so much isn't there is it is is warfare simple in 1916 no it's it's, it's incredibly complicated and, and this is without the logistics of bringing forward the shelves and everything else feeding the armies uh, again we, we we've got a, a friend who uh, whose name i can't remember he's a forgettable chap um but but logistics logistics and and the, and, and then the tactics, everything's complex, isn't it? Yeah. Now, when's this, when's it, let's remind us, when's this Battle of Flares Corselet going to be launched? Well, it's going to be launched on the 15th of September. Now, there, there would be approximately one field gun per 10 yards of front with a medium or heavy gun every 29 yards of the That's front. about twice they managed on uh, 1st July, but it's about a quarter of what they managed at uh, Neuve-Chapelle, a yeah. much shorter front but yeah. it's interesting uh, how many days so are they going for a hurricane nope. or are they going so in the end they decide on a three day preliminary bombardment and some 828,000 shells were fired and every one of those shells has to be brought up to the batteries uh, I mean, that's what I mean by logistics. That's a lot of shells to move about the battlefield. Um, now, what, how are they going to actually use the 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 the, the, uh, the tanks? Uh, I mean, you've got the you've got the infantry, you've got the artillery, and of course, you've got the cavalry. How are we going to fit into the all arms battle? Very early stages. How are we going to fit the uh, the tanks in? Well, uh, after a closely debated discussion, it's decided that the tanks would be employed in small groups of three scattered along the front line with the aim of moving ahead of the attacking troops to suppress identified German strong points. Hmm, so they're, they're splitting them up. So, no, surely, I'm not sure about that, but rather than a cons concentrated punch, they're going for little, little, a little bit. Um, what, uh, did you think, uh, do you think, how, where, where do the tanks stand in, in, in the minds of Haig and Rawlinson? Well, it, it, both Haig and Rawlinson still absolutely wedded to the concept of the uh, primacy of artillery. But as the are tanks we. were seen as a promising addition to the Book of War. But they didn't yet deserve any greater status than that of an, uh, an addendum. Is the Book of War like the Book of Love? <laughs> no. <laughs> now, it, it's therefore particularly ironic in their efforts to accommodate the tanks into their plans that actually they fatally dilute the power of the guns and thereby rendered the infantry appallingly vulnerable if the tanks failed. Well, I'm going to read. I, I, I think we need a, an excerpt from the... Uh, this is from the Instructions to the Employment of Tanks, Headquarters, 4th Army. Tanks will start movement at a time so calculated that they will reach their objectives five minutes before the infantry. The infantry will advance as usual behind a creeping barrage in which gaps about a hundred yards wide will be left for the route of the tanks some minutes before their arrival at these objectives. Um, right, I can see a problem here. Let's see if you can. Uh, is this sensible? Well... It, at first glance, it does seem sensible. However, in the attack on the most dangerous German strong points, there'd be no creeping barrage. And if the tanks failed, the infantry 
would be left to their own devices. So it would mean that the infantry don't have any artillery cover because the tanks meant to be there, but the tanks haven't made. If so, let's hope the tanks are completely reliable, eh? Absolutely. Now, uh, overall, it's clearly emphasised that if the tanks were held up for any reason, the infantry were not to wait, but were to push on regardless. Yet if the tanks succeeded and the infantry were checked, the tanks must turn back and endeavour to assist them. So the infantry are still the primary force there. On the actual battlefield, on the ground, behind the cover umbrella of the artillery, the infantry are the primary force. They always are. Now, um, how do you think, what, would the troops know what was going on? Or how, do, how do they react to the tanks? No, I mean, as they... they Is it a secret weapon? Yeah, I mean, as the troops move forward, they could, they become aware of an overall sense of secrecy and general mystery that surrounded wow. the new weapon that had been added to the armory of the British Army for this offensive. And there were wild rumours. Do you mean the British Army's prone to rumour? Yeah, yeah, soldiers do talk to each other. And the, the, these rumours are bounded as to what the mysterious shapes cloaked beneath the tarpaulins might be. What could they be? Strange tank-shaped things. And this is where the whole thing of the, the code word of tank being yeah, water. Yeah, being water tank. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure about that. I, don't, I think I think I always thought it was true, actually, but I don't know. Um, now, so what happens on the night of 14th of September? The tanks moved forward. Didn't, didn't you say they were noisy? They Yeah, so the tanks move forward, and at the last couple of miles, there's a constant drone of low-flying aircraft. Now, that's intended to cancel out the, uh, the, the roar of their infernal engines. Oh, infernal engines. Um, the tank tro- crews, they're tired, for they had little opportunity for rest in the previous 48 hours, and the task of moving the tanks forward was somewhat fraught, I'd say so, at that sort of speed. Right, well, and and they mar- um, the routes were marked out with white tapes for them, uh, but uh, they're cumbersome, aren't they? And, and what do you think? Is the uh, Somme battlefield flat and easy to get across, do you think? Yes. No, no. We mentioned earlier, visibility. So even if there is a white tape, you've got to be able to see it to follow it. So how many of the... There were 48... But Haig, by the way, had been asking for hundreds, uh, but he hadn't got them. Uh, That's not his fault, that's manufacturing. Uh, They they had 48 tanks meant to go over the top. How many actually get to the jumping-off stations? I don't mean over the line, I mean to the jumping-off. 36. That's not many, is it, Gary? Is that... uh... Is that a quarter of them don't make it? That's a quarter of them don't make it, Pete. Your maths is brilliant. Well, thank you. Um, so everything's ready for the big attack. It's not a local affair, is it? It's a big offensive. Uh, it's not only the three corps of Fourth uh, Army, which are quick spot test. Uh, third, the Fourteenth uh, and the Fifteenth. Yes, I put them in the wrong order to try and fool you. You did. <laughs> Uh, but also the Reserve Army, uh, who's, uh, the, the Canadian Corps and the French Army would also be attacking. Uh, it's, uh, uh, sorry, the Reserve Army Canadian Corps. Uh, they're in the Reserve Army. I'm confusing people. And the French Army, uh, who we must not forget. We will be doing a special uh, podcast on that with a, with a lovely special guest. So how many British divisions in all are attacking? Uh, there's 10 British divisions uh, and the odds are roughly at two to one in their favour. Last chance of winning the war in 1916? I, d- I don't think so, but I suppose it could be portrayed as that, couldn't it, uh, if you like. Uh, what's it like on 15th of September? Well, it's a typical sunny day uh, on the Somme. It's early autumn. Um, guns go bang? 
guns go bang, the guns roar, Pete, and the infantry waited in their assembly trenches for the whistles to blow. Now, um, that that's a, oh, this is a, another of our typical over-the-top stories, and waiting in those trenches is Sergeant Harold Horn of the 1st 6 Northumberland Fusiliers, a fine body of men, and you're going to be Harold. The hour before zero, while crouching in the trench and looking at one's watch, was an almost unbearable strain. Eventually, we heard the hum of machinery coming up behind us and saw through the mist great toad-like things with caterpillar tracks, a gun projecting forward and at the back a towel with two small wheels came lumbering over the shell hole ground at walking pace. One tank followed the tape to the field in place in the trench where I was and went on towards the German line. A few moments later, it was our zero time and we got out of the trench and followed. Once in the open and going forward, the tension and fear lessened to some extent and a feeling of excitement took over, helped in this case, I suppose, by curiosity about the tanks. Now, in this attack, once again, Garrett, we're gonna, we can't do it all, can we? We just don't have time or, or the inclination. Uh, to cover this is a massive attack 10 divisions it's huge and that's not counting the French uh, it's huge so we're just going to follow three of the sort of uh, you know we, we said that they were going to go forward in threes uh, just three of the tank attacks uh, I think we ought to pay tribute to our Canadian friends and look at the uh, the attack of the Canadian Corps and their tanks they're part of General Goff's uh, reserve army and they're pushing out from Poziers towards uh, the village of Corselet um, an easy thing do you think? No, it's a difficult nut to crack. And that's actually on the left of the assault in British formations. So now at this point, Pete, I think I think it's unfortunate to record that there was a, a vicious practicality about the orders given to the Canadians. And you're going to be Private Lance Catamol of the 21st Eastern Ontario Battalion. We were given strict instructions to take no prisoners until our objective had been gained. The reason for this was that so often in British advances, when the Germans had thrown down their arms in surrender and our men had moved through them, at the same time indicating to them to go to the rear where they would be collected as prisoners, the Germans had picked up their rifles again and shot our men in the back, thereby bringing the advance to a halt. No such risks could or would be taken in this important advance. That's a set of murderous uh, orders, in my view. Uh, So what what are they going for? Well, immediately in front of the 21st Canadian Battalion was the sugar refinery, which was just to the north of the main road passing through from Pozier via Corselet to Bapalme. The Germans had converted the factory into a fortress with several well-concealed machine guns, and once more you're going to be Private Lance Catamol. I never heard our officers' whistles to to signal the advance, and I don't suppose they heard them either because of the terrible crash with which the creeping barrage opened up exactly at 6.20am. The air over our heads was suddenly filled with a soughing and sighing, whining and screaming of thousands of shells of all calibres, making it impossible to hear anything. We stood up. And I looked around behind me. As far as the eye could see, from left to right, there was a sheet of flame from the hundreds of guns lined up, almost wheel to wheel, belching fire and smoke. It was an awe-inspiring sight. Well, 
Now, when they go over the top, they enter a veritable inferno of German shell fire raking across the battlefield. Hang on, hang on. That means that the counter-battery fire had not been effective. Not been, no. So this is part of the planning that isn't working yet. It doesn't work for quite a while after this. Now, as they approached the refinery, the attack stalled under the weight of German fire and the infantry went to ground. It was at this point that one of the attached tanks made a dramatic appearance. Now, you're going to be Private Magnus McIntyre Hood, a 24th Victoria Rifles <laughs> Battalion. He's Canadian, of course. Uh, and uh, the, he sees this, this saviour coming through the, 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 through, across the battlefield. The attack had been held up at this point, and a party of us had to rush up with more ammunition, bullets and grenades to the 21st Battalion, lying in shell holes in front of the refinery. As we reached them, we saw a land ship named the Creme de Mons pass ahead and go right up to the walls of the refinery, its guns blazing. It seemed to lean against one of the walls which collapsed and the monster roared into the fort while we could see the Germans streaming out of it, offering an excellent target to the riflemen in the shell holes. Now, this Crime de Mont, that's C5. It's a male tank, i.e. it's got uh, six-pounders as well as machine guns. It, it was commanded by Captain Arthur Inglis of C Company, Heavy Branch Machine Gun Company. Um, this dramatic, it's it's very dramatic. It's super dramatic appearance of the tanks. I mean, what how what what sort of an effect does it have on the Germans? Well, uh, I mean, pre presumably they've already been battered to buggery by the shells. Uh, it must have been quite traumatic. And you're going to tell all as Feldwebel Weinart of the 211th Infantry Regiment, uh, and uh... a man came running in front from the left, shouting, "There is a crocodile crawling into our lines." The poor wretch was off his head. He had seen a tank for the first time and had imagined this giant of a machine rearing up and dipping down as it came to be a monster. It presented a fantastic picture, this colossus in the dawn light. One moment its front section would disappear into a crater with the rear section still protruding. The next, its yawning mouth would rear up out of the crater to roll slowly forward with terrifying assurance. Now, thanks to this tank, and it probably is thanks to this tank. <laughs> that was a wonderful reading, by the way. Um, the, the, the sugar refinery is captured. The, the Canadian infantry sweep through, uh, don't they? Um, um, uh, so, uh, yeah, well, so it's all well? They've done well, but, but there was a brutality about their approach which the men felt was, was officially sanctioned. And uh, you're going to be Private Lance Catamal. We came upon an enemy trench to our left. In keeping with our, our no-prisoners order, this trench was being mopped up and the occupants eliminated. The trench was already half full of dead enemy and here and there little columns of steam rose above the cool morning air, either from hot blood or from urine, I, 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 which I understand is released on the death of any human body. Two Canadians stood over the trench, one uh, on the parapet and the other on the parados, and they exterminated the Germans as they came out of their dugouts. One young German, scruffy, bareheaded, cropped hair and wearing steel-rimmed spectacles, ran, screaming with fear, dodging in and out amongst us to avoid being shot, crying out, Nine! Nine! He pulled out from his breast pocket a handful of photographs and tried to show them to us. I suppose they were of his wife and children, in an effort to gain our sympathy. 
It was all of no avail. As the bullet smacked into him, he fell to the ground, motionless, the pathetic little photographs fluttering to the earth around him. Uh, I find this very difficult. That is uh, incredibly... I mean, we've done a lot of podcasts now, but that one quote, I think, is one of the worst that that I've read. Well, the the pathetic little photographs fluttering to the ground. That's awful. It strikes a chord. Uh, I think... There are there are reasons that the, the these uh, this Canadian unit's behaving like this. Uh, are those reasons a sufficient excuse for what seems to be cold blooded murder? There's no excuse for for what, on the face of it, is appalling conduct. There's simply no necessity for the murder of, in particular, that soldier. Right. So we'll leave that there. It's it. it, it this is, by the way, is no. Uh, we're not getting at the Canadians here. This is this is the sort of conduct that various units. Uh, 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 it, it's one of those things that happen at war. War is not nice. Now, uh, to their right, further to the south, the Fifteenth Corps, and that's uh, who's that? Who's that? Quick, 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 quick! It's Without under thinking, the command of Lieutenant General Henry Horn. Ooh, it's in New Zealand, the Forty-first and the Fourteenth Divisions, and and they're the ones that are driving towards driving. <laughs> well, the tanks are towards. Uh, flares. Um, how many? Well, who's helping them get flares? Uh, this is the this is the, the the key point as far as we're concerned. Well, they had uh, some eighteen tanks of D Company heavy machine gun company to help them with the daunting task. Although only fourteen of them managed to drag themselves even as far as the starting. Points. And a lot of them don't get much further than that. Now we're looking at one tank. It's a very famous tank. It's a D seventeen commanded by Second Lieutenant Stuart Hasty. Hasty, hasty. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, he called it Dineken, but we won't be doing uh, accents. His second gearsman in his tank, he's the commander of uh, D-17, is uh, Gunner Roy Reifer, and you're going to read a quote from him, Gary. We were a mail tank and carried two six-pounder guns with several hundred rounds of ammunition and some Hotchkiss light machine guns with three oh three ammunition. Our tank was filled up with stores of all kinds, Drums of engine oil, gear oil, iron rations, gas masks, equipment, overalls, revolvers, anti-bump-your-head-against-the-roof-of-the-tank leather helmets, carrier pigeons in a basket, semaphore signals. We even went into action with ten two-gallon tins of petrol, flaming red in colour, on the outside of the tank on either side of the exhaust pipes. Hang on a minute. Uh... That sounds dangerous to me. It sounds dangerous to me as well. Now, I'm just thinking about the poor pigeons. Oh. Yum, yum. Now, unfortunately, a somewhat farcical incident soon removed two of the tanks so, trundling towards Fleurs. Tank D9, commanded by 2nd Lieutenant Victor Huffen, was following Tank D14, commanded by 2nd Lieutenant G.F. Court when they came to grief in embarrassing fashion and yeah. you're going to be 2nd Lieutenant Victor Huffen of Tank D9. Now, uh, he's not the brightest tool in the, 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 uh, the, the whatever it is, uh, toolbox. That in the tank. <laughs> um, he really isn't. Uh, so he's following Court's tank, 2nd uh, Lieutenant Court's uh, tank. And, and Huffen says this, before we'd gone 200 yards, a court attempted to cross a disused support trench. 
<laughs> As he crossed it, the tank weighed 28 tons. The parapet crumbled beneath him. His tail end, the backside of the tank, disappeared into the tent, trench. He scrambled out of his tank, quite a job, and he came back to me. Now, we'd been equipped with a very large iron hooks on the stern of our tanks, and we had wire hawsers coiled on the roof. Court was a particular friend of mine, so I manoeuvred up behind him and attempted to come alongside of him, to cross in front of him and try to tear him out. But in manoeuvring alongside of him, my sponson got tangled with his and the two tanks were locked together. Why do I think he's a moron? Well, apart from the fact you think most people are. That's not true, Gary. Uh, because he's put his, his tank at risk, frankly. And who are these tanks really meant to be responsible They're for? They're meant to be supporting the infantry in the taking of fleurs. So does it matter that Cork's a particular no. friend of him? No. He's, he's got a completely wrong set of priorities here, hasn't he? He has, and, and it's really difficult because it's very painful when your sponsons get tangled. Oh, that is terrible. Yeah. Now, there's nothing more they can do but climb onto the roof and watch the rest of the battle. Now, that's quite telling in itself. I wonder what the infantry thought of this. Yeah. They wouldn't well, have complained, that is one thing. Well, they wouldn't have complained, but they would have thought it was uh, a wretched bad luck. Um, they might have thought that it was even ineptitude. Yes, inept, yes, definitely. Uh, now, uh, passing close to them, D-17, that's 2nd Lieutenant Stuart Hasty, he, he continues up the main road. They're going directly into flares. You can actually follow this in a map. And there's great books about this. I've forgotten the chap who wrote it now. Good God, he's, he's dead now. He was brilliant. There's a brilliant book on the tank attack at flares. And you're going to be Second Lieutenant Stuart Hester, who speaks in a, an Edinburgh accent. It was up to me to carry on alone. Having crossed the front German line, I could see the old road down into flares, which was in a shocking condition, having been shelled by both sides. At the other end of this road, about a mile away, which was about the limit of my vision from the tank, I could see the village of Fleurs, more or less clouded with smoke from the barrage which had come down on top of it, and the houses. Some of them painted white, some seemed to be all kinds of colours. Across the front of the village we could see the wire of a trench named Fleurs Trench, and this formed a barricade in front of the village on the British side. Now you can see all this on the maps, and we will put up a map of Fleurs. We made our way down the remnants of this road with great difficulty. Just as we started off, our steering gear was hit and we resorted to steering by putting on the brake on each track alternatively. Now, the steering gear, is that the two wheels? That's the two wheels externally at the back of the tank, yeah. And instead, he's using the brakes on the things, slowing one track. Slowing one track. Which makes you go... Yeah, either left or right. Depends which one you slow. Uh. And we resorted to steering by putting on the brake on each track alternatively and trying to keep the tank following the line of the Fleurs-Delville Wood Road. When we got down to Fleurs Trench and passing into the village, there was a great deal of activity from the eaves under the roofs of the cottages and also from a trench which appeared to be further through the village but which we couldn't just locate at that point. Poor visibility. So uh, when he says activity, he means people shooting at them. So yeah. the, there's bits of splash flying around the tank, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, um, loads of... It, it must have been horrible in there. Now, above them, there's a contact patrol of the Royal Flying Corps, um, and it cites the D-17 moving through the, the flares, uh, and there's a message which is famous, 
tank scene in Main Street flares going on with large numbers of troops following it. Hmm, there weren't exactly large numbers of troops following it because it was pretty well on its own. Um, and the press make that, um, the press reported that tank. Did you think the press ever uh, exaggerate things or in any way uh, change things? No. What, what, what does the press report that? The press as? report it entirely accurately as a tank is walking up the high street of Fleurs with the British Army cheering behind. Yeah, bollocks. Uh, the D-17 soon in trouble, actually. Uh, th- th- this is part of the myth of the tanks on the Somme. Um, what what is uh, has Stuart Hastie achieving with his tank D-17? Well, he's not achieving very much. He's, he's literally crashing around the ruins of Flares without solid infantry support. Now, that's... You know, some of them say had some got, hadn't got through. They had some, some had got into the village behind him, and that's what the the aircraft saw. But uh, what have they done when the German opened uh, battery fire? Opened well, they're naturally taking cover. They've gone to ground. Uh, it's it's an entirely sensible thing to do, and they were invisible from uh, the the D seventeen. Couldn't see what's happening. So you're going to be Stuart Hastie again, Second Lieutenant Stuart Hastie, D seventeen. Having steered the engine by using the brakes up to this point. The engine was beginning to knock very badly, and it looked as if we wouldn't be fit to carry on very much further. We made our way up the main street, during which time my gunners had several shots at various people who were underneath the eaves or even in the windows of some of the cottages. We went on down through the high street as far as the first right angle bend. We turned there, and the main road goes for a matter of 200 to 300 yards, and then turns another right angle to the left, and proceeds out through towards Guadalcore. But we did not go past that point. At this point, we had to make our minds up what to do. The engine was really in such a shocking condition that it was liable to let us down at any moment. So I had a look around, so far as it was possible, to do in that middle of a village being shelled at that time by both sides. I could see no signs of the British Army coming up behind me. So I slewed the tank round with great difficulty on the brakes and came back to Fleur's Trench and turned the tank again to face the Germans. Now, we know that later on this is how they steer it, but, of course, he's never practised it, has he? He doesn't know how to do it. That's that's how you steer a tank later on, Uh, but that's interesting. Uh, Then what happens? What happens? Well, one of the tracks is hit. Uh, Can tanks go with one track? No, I mean at that point it's it's uh, immobilised. I think there's a picture of it in Flair's trench. Yeah, they abandon it in the trench. Uh, have they achieved much? No, uh, apart from a lot of excitement. No. Now n- next to them, uh, on the right of Fourth Army, pushing so between the uh, between them and the French, essentially, is the Fourteenth uh, Corps. Who are they? Uh, it's the Guards. 6th and 56th Divisions. And they're attacking on a front stretching from Ginchy. We talked about Ginchy in the Summer Madness episode, to Combe. Uh, again, they're allotted 15 tanks, 9 for the Guards Division and 3 each for the 6th and 56th Divisions. Um, now, uh, here, the, the, I'm sorry to say, it just this is not a great hour for the Tank Corps, um, what, what would become the Tank Corps. The tanks do not do well here as the assault tactics break down here. Um, the Royal Artillery had carefully left these 100-yard gaps um, uh, and uh, then the tanks don't appear. In, uh, the, they don't, loads of the tanks in this area don't appear. So what happens to the infantry in front of those gaps? Well, the results are predictably disastrous. Without a creeping barrage, the infantry were exposed to deadly fire from all sides. Now, and, and another thing, uh, uh, the, uh, the preliminary bombardment 
seems to have been badly directed in this area. A lot of the trenches, the, the German trenches, seem to be still intact. Um, now, uh, for, for why aren't they there? Well, of the three, let, 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 let's look at in, in, in front of 6th Division. Let's look at that, in front of 6th Division, yeah? Uh, in front of 6th Division, uh, they're facing the German Seidau-Hoth redoubt. Uh, we call it the quadrilateral because we've got no imagination. <laughs> Also, the Germans have no imagination. They call theirs Sidau Hoth, and we call it the quadrilateral. Brilliant. Um, anyway, so what went wrong? What, what, what well, goes it wrong? all starts to go wrong the night before, actually, um, as they're moving forwards. So they've the, got three, three tanks. They've got three in. tanks. Of the three tanks allotted, two break down while moving forward, and they've got to be left behind. It's only left one tank to carry forward the hopes of the 6th Division the next morning. Who's that then? The C-22, which was commanded by 2nd Lieutenant Basil Henriquez. Hmm, nice, normal, yeah. Yeah. Um, Now, there's lots of controversy about this tank. It's been claimed that uh, Henriquez opens fire on some of the 9th Norfolks while behind the the British line. I don't know whether this is true or not. The 9th Norfolks thought it was true. uh, And he's the only one moving in that sector. Um, uh, Why do you think that... This is the visibility question again, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, he's also supposed to have moved uh, forward too early and, and thus aroused the German suspicions with the result that they dropped a brief but damaging artillery barrage so on the British it comes troops. Out, it comes out, he's meant to come out just a bit before, <coughs> sorry, but he comes out too early. Yeah, so so they're actually under a, a, an artillery barrage whilst they're still waiting for zero hour. So it's certainly not zero hour when C-22 starts to move across no man's land, heading to the quadrilateral, the Sidao Ho redoubt. The Germans... How do they react in turn? I mean, does everything go perfectly for them? Well, they seem to have been um, stupefied by its strange appearance and and they failed to open fire as the C-22 slowly rumbled across to their lines. So when they get to the German front line, what happens then? Uh, He opens fire, doesn't he, Enriquez? His gunners open up. His gunners open up and and this brings the the Germans to their senses and they opened a heavy small arms fire on the the tank. Now, here's an interesting point because it's not... when It it is small arms, but there's something special about the... Uh, the ammunition used against uh, against this tank. What is it? Well, and it, it's a sign of the future, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, it included armour-piercing rifle ammunition. Why would they was, have that? Why? Well, it was, Why? It, it's normally used to penetrate the metal shields that were used by British snipers. Oh, the sniper plates? Yeah. Hmm. Now, you're going to be... I'm going to be Basil Enriquez. Second Lieutenant Basil Enriquez of the C-22 tank. I'm not sure he'll get much promotion after this. Um... All the time I had the front flaps open for visibility, visibility was far too restricted if they were shut. But after a hail of machine gun fire, I closed them tightly for the first time. Then the periscope got hit away and the small prisms got broken one after another. Then armour-piercing bullets began to penetrate in spite of the fact that the tanks were said to be completely uh, proof against them. Then my driver got hit. Then one of my gunners. Then I got splinters in the face and legs. Meanwhile, the gunners claimed to have killed or hit 20 or 30 of the enemy. I could see absolutely nothing. 
The only thing to do was to open the front flap slightly and peep through. Eventually this got hit, so it was hanging only by a thread. And the enemy could fire in at us at close range. It's going badly, isn't it? Yeah, and it's just at this point the British barrage burst out at 0630. So that'd be the creeping barrage for the, for the, for the infantry. Yeah, now fortunately, for the C-22 at least... <clears throat> The barrage was not directed at the quadrilateral as it was located within one of the tank lanes which was left in the barrage. Of course, of course. So it's all right. So as the men of the 6th Division moved forward across no man's land, they're being met with a howl of fire. And you're going to be Second Lieutenant Basil Henriquez again. Because yeah, there's only just, yeah, uh, this is just one tank. Uh, so it's had an impact where it's gone through the lines, but a very localised. And for the rest of it, the infantry are, well, in that 100 yards. He says this, as the infantry were now approaching and it was impossible to guide the car by car he means tanky thing uh, and as I now discovered the sides weren't bulletproof I decided that to save the tank from being captured I had better withdraw how we got back I shall never understand we dodged shells from the artillery it was just a preserving hand he means God I think which saved us it was like hell in a rough sea made of shell holes the way we got over the ground was marvellous. Every moment we were going to stick, but we didn't. The sight of thousands of men dying and wounded was ghastly. I hate to think of it all. Why might he hate to think of the men lying on the battlefield? Well, for two reasons I can think of. A, he's actually leaving the battlefield. Yes. So he's exposing them to more fire. Uh, and B, we said he can't see. So he might have run, he over, might have some, run over some of them. I yeah. think that would be in his mind. I think there's a lot of inconsistencies in uh, Basil uh, Enrique's story. Um, um, I'm, I'm not sure about this retiring just as the infantry are there. Uh, well, also, on the other hand, what are we to throw brickbats at an officer who's trying his best and clearly suffering from stress and uh, he is there are inconsistencies though Pete he, he seemingly can see well enough to steer from from the battlefield just as the infantry need him the most and yet he left the battlefield because he couldn't see and he couldn't navigate the field. Uh, it, 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 the, the attack was a success was it? No it, 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 no. it hardly needs to be said it's a dreadful failure. Now what is the reason for the failure is it that all the fault of the tanks then no i mean as we mentioned earlier they they are after all only an adjunct to the artillery and infantry that together still ruled the battlefield so it's not just their fault what what is it what is it that is it then well what, you've got what, to, you've got to go back to the planning and and look at the deliberate weakening of the artillery to allow for the tanks but that's not the tank's fault and then the inability to respond swiftly by filling the gaps when it became apparent that the tanks were letting them down well that's i can understand that if you look at it from an artillery point of view because artillery cannot just react like this they have to fire plan fire you can't just launch a creeping barrage from nothing you have to plan it. it it's all drawn up beforehand uh, that's interesting that is interesting and i'm going to be uh, second lieutenant basil Enrique again and he's sort of looking at the situation he says this if only we'd been able to reconnoiter if only we had some kind of training with the infantry if only there had been some semblance of cooperation with the artillery if only there'd been proper practice over ground that was like the Somme and if only we had a little more sleep and a little less showing off what a marvellous story this Somme battle might have been hmm. Hmm. yeah all right mate uh, some of them had trained 
the question of tank infantry cooperation is as almost as long as the history of warfare. It is difficult, and they're still pondering on it in the Second World War. It's difficult because tanks are difficult to communicate with. Um, uh, yeah, now, and if you compare it to the nadir of the August and early September operations, the Battle of Fleurs Corselets actually a startling success. Yeah, well, because it's a big, wide-front battle, isn't it? Uh, so why is it a success? A considerable stretch of the German front line's been captured. Yep, that's right. all around Flares, up around Corselet. And their second line had been significantly breached in the Flares sector. Yeah, because they got through and towards Goedekel. Yeah, that's right. Uh, now, the long overdue capture of High Wood... Well, we've not, we've not talked about this, but this is what I mean. This is all going on as well, isn't it? And the final portions of Byzantine Ridge can be seen as a success of sorts. Highwood opened why, up... Why is Highwood important? Well, it opened up a far better tactical situation for the British with a much-enhanced observation over the German lines. You get a good view from there. You get a good view from there. Now, um, what do the Germans do? How do the Germans react to this, the, this, 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 this battle? Well, they, they, a few days later, they bow at the inevitable and they, they retreat back onto the low Le Transloy Ridge. Yeah, it's not much of a ridge, but it, it is. they just drop back, don't they? Now, let, let's analyse the performance of the tanks. Um, uh, I, I know that I have a perception of the use of tanks on the 15th September. And uh, can you guess the word that comes to my mind? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be difficult to describe it without using the word failure. Yeah. Um, Yet, nevertheless, no. there are some positive. Although Haig had ordered a large number of tanks, as soon as he was aware of their potential, there'd been a manifest disappointment in the inability of the hard-pressed British munitions industry to deliver them on time. So they've got a lot of things on their they've plate. They've got a lot of things on their plate. Tanks, aeroplanes, uh, uh, You shells. had a shell shortage in 1915. So there's a problem. So if that's not the tank's fault. No. That's not the tanks for. There should have been a lot more of them. Uh, now, were the officers and crews, as Enriquez says, not properly trained? Well, they hadn't had the time to be properly trained. Uh, the infantry units that surrounded them in action had, had usually had no chance to train with them so at all. This sense, is the secrecy issue. Yeah, and Enrique is, is right there. We, we, I mean, we don't like Enrique much, but... The, the, we don't the, dislike him. Yeah, don't dislike him, but the poor chap's doing his best, isn't he? But uh, they, 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 they've not had proper chance to train with them. Uh, what, now, the tanks themselves, what, what about the, the Well, tanks? this is really telling. I mean, I, this, this is an issue, I think. The tanks that went into action are plagued with mechanical failures and their speed was too slow to even keep up with the infantry when things were going well too slow to rush to the point of need when things were going badly so uh, they're just too bloody slow i mean that's that's really telling the infantry moved faster than the tank what why 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 mechanical failures because any new machinery is going to break down until you've got fitters and people who've mastered it it's going to break down isn't it it's it's, it's just the way it is uh, what about the visibility issue that really is the, the and and the environment inside the tank that does what does that do to the fighting efficiency of the crews well it, it's completely compromised and you know they they can't last very much more than a couple of hours in that environment and um, it, it's completely debilitating. The visibility question is a real issue. If you cannot see either the enemy or your path, you are actually moving forward blindly. Now, um, so overall, 
in the battle, when things went well, the tanks were a useful adjunct. They, they, they helped the, the, the things. But where they failed, the artillery were unable to uh, respond, were they? They just couldn't, artillery can't quickly respond to sudden changes in plan. And the infantry were left on their own. What, what do you think sensible officers thought um, after the battle? Well, sensible officers, they, they avoided all the hyperbole and, uh, and, and they actually saw the tanks for what they really were. Haig himself would see the potential of the tank and he ordered thousands more. I'd say he was a true father of the tank corps myself. Not, not you know, the, uh, I, I, I like saying that because it really annoys tankies. Yeah. Uh, but and if, if anyone was a father of the tank corps, it was Haig. But some people have claimed that he should have withheld its use of, uh, you know, this new super weapon until there were sufficient numbers to end the war in a single mighty stroke. These people are complete and utter idiots. And it, I can actually become quite cross with these people. Let's just look at this. This is not how weapon development is achieved, is it? There's two things. Uh, is the 1916 Mark One a fully developed uh, article of weapon of war? No, and and there were further marks, which tells you that. Yeah, well, um, Mark Four is, I think, the next the the one. Yeah, as we said, they were mechanically unreliable and too few of them, uh, uh, too slow and cumbersome, and they had limited powers of both offence and defence. What do you have to do to a weapon of war before you can use it effectively? Well, until weapons have been used in active service conditions, it's almost impossible to judge their efficacy in action, to carry out the development work to eradicate technical problems. For example, the external steering, the wheels at the back, they were unnecessary and they were in fact removed. Also, you have to work out your tactics. How, are you going to leave lanes uh, free? No, you're not. You, uh, lanes, sorry, lanes for them to go without artillery barriers. You can't do this sort of thing. You have to sort these things out. What also do you have to do about the crews? Well, you've got to train the crews under the pressure of battle. And Again, Enriquez does refer to it, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, and generally you've got to develop the tank as a, a offensive weapons of war within the total effort. You mean the all-arms battle, as would be in 1918? Absolutely, and, and and after all, the Battle of the Somme—it's it's no skirmish. Oh, you is mean, it? Hang on, I see what you're saying, and uh, that, that you've got—you you can't just stop. You can't say, "Oh well, we won't fight till 1917, November 1917, the Battle of Cambrai." Well, we'll unleash it as a huge surprise. You can't wait a year. Why not? Well, because it, you know the Somme's the major offensive. Allied offensive of 1916, and Britain was. Can't we just tell the French? No, Britain was very much the junior partner in the coalition with France. So uh, it's a kitchen sink battle, is it? What What do I mean by kitchen sink battle? Well, everything that was thrown in that might add weight to the battering ram of British arms, and thereby finally overthrow the brick wall of German resistance in September. So everything's thrown in. It's all thrown in. That's it, isn't it? And and that's why Haig deployed the tanks because. He hoped it would work. And there were levels of success that meant that, ultimately, it was developed further, more were ordered, and ultimately it was used in the all-arms battles of 1918. And they don't use the steering wheels because they discovered they could do without them. And and that's the sort of weapon development. And and the whole series of SS pamphlets, how to use tanks in the offensive, how to do this, how to use that, that's all part of what's called the learning curve. Not a phrase we like using, but it's all part of the learning process, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and you know, the tanks were... Absolutely a brand new weapon of war. Yeah, and that Battle of Flares Cursolet, the tank corps will always remember it and, uh, and, and we'll, we, 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 we've enjoyed talking about it, haven't we? Cheers, Sad at Pete. times. <laughs>
Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?